our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that will actually lead us into the Easter season, which is going to be exciting as well. So John chapter 4, um, excited. I hope that all of you are feeling refreshed this morning. If you aren't feeling refreshed, then I pray that at least you're around people who will love you, who care about you and your situation, what you're doing. Um, maybe you're new here this morning and somebody came up to you. and Maybe they gave you a hug. I hope they did. Christians do that. Awkward hugs. We don't even ask. We just sort of do it. Um, but I just pray that you would hear from the Lord this morning. And, and I believe he has a word. I know he's been speaking to me all week. And I pray that he's been speaking to you as well. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. it's talking about John the Baptist. This is the very beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry. Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And so where we find Jesus in this situation, he's got to take care of some drama. He's got to take care of some business. These teachers of the laws and the rulers of the land, they're starting to hear about Jesus. His name is starting to spread like crazy. He's becoming very popular. They're starting to baptize people like in troves. And the Pharisees are starting to ask questions about who is this guy, what's going on. So Jesus, he has to get back to Galilee, but in the way, the place where he is right now, he has to take a very unusual route. Um, Most Jews, there's a, a city called Samaria, and Jews did not like this town. They didn't like the Samaritan people. They didn't even recognize them. They wouldn't do business with them. They wouldn't um, talk to them. They wouldn't eat with them. They completely marginalized them. They completely avoided them. But Jesus, he, he wasn't a, he, that's not how Jesus works, right? He came with good tidings of joy for all people. And so that's who our God is. That who, that's who Jesus is. And so most Jews would actually walk tw- 10 to 20 miles around the city by foot. I mean, that's like going all the way around the 101. That's not fun at all. By foot, mind you. And so they're, they're, Jesus is like, I'm not doing that because I love these people. And so he goes straight through the city, which for Jews is a huge no-no. Um, and, and so... Jesus, he, he gets into the city, uh, he brings his trainees with him, his disciples, he has 12 of them, I like to call them 12s, um, it, you might not know what that means, but some of you would and that would be funny, uh, but as the story until, unfolds, um, he's, he's going to spend actually three days in Samaria, and that is unheard of for a Jew, Especially a reputable man who, who is a teacher of, of the law and has people following him in Jewish culture. This is very questionable. And so by the time they get to Samaria, his, his disciples are wondering what in the world is going on. Why are we going through this town? This isn't what we do. This isn't what we've been brought up to and been told that we should participate in. But their, their leader is telling them this is what they do. And they come to this well. And as they come to the well, Jesus goes to the twelve and he says, hey, go get lunch. As they exit the scene, a woman enters the scene and Jesus actually now is going to engage in a conversation with this woman. Now on top of everything else Jesus is already doing, which is completely anti-cultural, he is now going to talk to this woman. He's a respectable man. This woman was probably terrified because Jewish men viewed Sumerian women as less than dogs. And so she's probably trying to figure out what in, this world, what in the world does this Jewish man 
want with me. This woman, we will go to find out, she's a woman of the night. She's morally depraved. She is full of these addictions, shame, guilt. And we know because women during this time, the height of their social day was going to the well with other women. But she is there alone. So she's a social outcast. And they engage in this conversation. And at one point, Jesus actually starts reading her mail or calling out her life. And Jesus says, hey, go call your husband. She's like, well, um, my, I don't have a husband. And, she's, and he, Jesus is like, yeah, well, you did. <laughs> you actually had five. And the boyfriend you're living with now isn't even your husband. So she says, wow, you're a prophet. And Jesus is like, I'm a little bit more than that, but we're on the right track. And so the woman, she comes to this place and, and she doesn't want to talk about her issues anymore. So she jumps into a conversation about worship. Have you ever known somebody and they just want to get really spiritual because they don't want to deal with the practical in their lives and so they jump into the Bible and they're all about the Bible and you're like, you got issues and you should really be addressing these. But they want to, so that's what the woman's doing. Uh, She wants to talk about spiritual things. Jesus is like, oh, you want to talk about worship? Okay, let me tell you about worship. And so she's completely blown away. Um, She goes, well, there's this Messiah coming and Jesus is like, ta-da, it's me. (laughs) Now this whole entire situation, I mean, it's probably pretty uh, comical to, to watch this all go down, but this woman is starting to come to the realization, it's all coming together, that she might be talking to the Messiah. And right when this happens, 12, uh, the 12 disciples, um, they are returning, and so they're entering back into the scene. They're seeing that now not only do we have uh, the, this, uh, that we're in Samaria, But now Jesus is talking to a woman. So this is like even worse for them. Uh, She sees the disciples coming. She takes off. um, But for some reason, and this is what we're really going to get into, she sees their judging eyes. She sees that they probably don't like this situation at all. In fact, the Bible says that, but the disciples don't have enough guts to ask Jesus what's going on or why he's talking to this woman. Um, She takes off. She exits back to her town, and she starts telling everybody about her testimony. And this is the testimony she tells in, in John chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. It says, The woman then left her water pot. She was so excited that she left her water pot there at the well, when, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This is the testimony that she walks away with. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now we know that this story, as the whole entire Bible, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when something in the Bible is repeated, it's not because the Holy Spirit forgot that he had already said that. It's because he's trying to make a point. That God wants to tell us something. That God wants to highlight something. And so we find that this testimony is actually repeated again just a couple of verses later in John Four thirty-nine through 42, the story continues and says, And many of the Samaritans in the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This morning I want to talk to you about what happens when you meet Jesus. 
And I want to focus on the testimony of this woman who lived a below-average life. But she encounters Jesus, and she runs into the town, and this is her testimony. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. What happens when you meet Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, we come expecting you to show up, Lord, that we will meet Jesus, Lord. And I'm excited to see what your word said happened when some woman who, who was marginalized, who, who had no business of thinking anything of herself, but when she met you, the, her life was changed, Lord. And I believe this morning that our lives will be changed as well, Lord, as we see the way that you encounter people, Lord. I pray that we would encounter people, Lord, that the way that you ministered, that we would minister as well, Lord, teach us this morning, change our lives, convict us of what you desire to convict us of, Lord, and help us to live here different, Lord, that we would never be the same. So we expect these things, we believe them. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. I'll never forget the first time I met a um, sports figure, somebody who is larger than life. Maybe you've met somebody who is a movie star or a television star or a politician or a sports star. The first time I met a sports star um, was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I was in fourth grade, and uh, I was living up in Seattle. There was a new family that came to our school. I went to a, a, a private school, and this new family came to the school. Uh, they had just moved from Green Bay. Uh, the dad was a Green Bay Packer, had just retired, and his son was one grade younger than me. But we hit it off. We became really good friends, and um, he, his dad was now a defensive coach for the Seahawks. And so this was really cool to me. I love the Seahawks, but I wasn't as big of a fan yet. Um, this was what really got me into loving the Seahawks. But the team was really cool, and I loved them. And they had guys like Eugene Robinson and Kurt Warner, or Chris Warner, not Kurt Warner. Um, there's another guy named Cortez Kennedy who will be in the Hall of Fame someday. He was 300 plus pounds and could run like a 4740 which is scary that he could catch you and he's like 330 pounds. Just amazing. But my friend had a birthday party. And so for his birthday party, what we got to do was go down to the kingdom and play flag football with all the football players, which... Oh my goodness, like I could not sleep the night before. And, and so I've got all these ideas in my head that Cortez Kennedy was going to see my crazy skills and someday that they're going to remember me and I'm going to get to go play for the Seahawks. And, and this is going to be great. And it's going to be the beginning of all the end of, of my life. This is going to be the best thing ever. And I remember walking into the kingdom and seeing these giants. Like I'd never seen human beings this big before, this fast before, this tall before. It was, it was unbelievable. It was like the light of heaven was shining down in the kingdom upon these people and angels were singing glory in the highest. Like that's, that's what I remember happening. And, and I had huge expectations. But when I walked into that kingdom, onto that field, it was so much greater than I could have ever imagined. It blew any preconceived thoughts or notions that I had completely out of the water. It was so much greater, than, than, so much better than I could have ever hoped or thought of. And, and you know, I wonder sometimes if our ideas and our concepts of when we meet Jesus, I, I wonder if sometimes we think we know what it would be like to meet him because we know about him. 
And I wonder if we actually met him, just like when I walked into that kingdom and met these Seahawks players, if we would completely blow away any expectations that we thought we already would have, no matter how great they are. I believe it would. I believe we would walk in there and just seeing who he is, hearing his voice, seeing his presence, and the look in his eyes would just completely throw any ideas that we had out the window. And I think sometimes we fall into this trap where we think if we know about Jesus, that it's the same as meeting Jesus. And so what we do is we just settle for knowing about him when he obviously doesn't want us just to know about him, but to actually meet him. And as you read the Bible, you see time and time again that the Bible tells us, do not settle for ideas or concepts about your Savior, but he wants to meet you. He wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And the reason that we know that he desires to have this connection with us, the evidence of that is that Jesus actually became a man. And the message, what it says is God came in flesh and moved into your neighborhood. That's how passionate he is about you. That's how passionate he is about me. That we shouldn't just settle for knowing about him or of him, his ways or his deeds. But we are called to truly experience him. And I love the book of John because it's all about relationship. It's all experiential. It's, um, every gospel has its own sort of um, look at the life of Jesus. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit's assignment for the book of John... It's all about this idea of relationship and experience and understanding that Jesus is the son of God and you and I can have that son or daughter relationship just like Jesus did. So the book of John is so emotional. If you like romantic novels or movies, the book of John is like totally for you. If you like um, to cuddle, it's totally the book of John is the book for you. If you like Snuggies, then you should read the book of John. And if you're cold this morning, we're going to try and get Snuggies with GAC, Jesus Church, on them. And we're going to start passing them out. We'll have them on hooks in the back or something like that. Uh, just, I mean, that's weird in Arizona, but I mean, I guess we get cold. So some people are cold, some people are hot. But we come to the scene at the well, and we see Jesus in a state where he's all about intentional relationship. He doesn't care about the stigmas. He doesn't care about the assumptions of other people or the gossip that might be going on. All he cares is the centerpiece of his creation, a hurting, lost, lonely, shamed woman that he comes across. And he engages into this conversation with her, in this conversation with this broken woman in a culture that says protocol is you shouldn't even be here. You shouldn't be anywhere near this woman. Yet Jesus doesn't care. We don't even get her name, but God knows her name. She might not be significant to you or me, but she was significant to God. And so he engages in this conversation. As the scene starts to reveal itself and unfold, Jesus begins to reveal himself to her. And the Messiah is standing right in front of this woman, and she's been thinking about him all the years of her life. And it says that she's looking and waiting for the Messiah. She even says this to Jesus, not knowing who he is, and he's standing right in front of her. And she doesn't even recognize it. Because she, she never had any clue that this is what God could be. That God could have a relationship with her. That God could be standing and engaging in that conversation face to face with her. And so she gets into this place. 
her life is completely changed. Everything changes in her life, and she speaks that testimony in John 4.29. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, this is sort of an odd testimony for a woman uh, in this situation. Like for some of us, if we met up with Jesus and he told us everything we ever did, we might feel good about ourselves. Like, yeah, Jesus is telling me about my successes and how many times I've, I've volunteered at the church and, and all the businesses that I've been able to um, be a part of and the money that I've been able to give away. And, and then we run into town and be like, Jesus told me all these things and let me tell you about them too because I've done all of these great things and that would be our testimony and it would be really exciting. But we look at a woman who has no grounds what whatsoever to boast at all. I mean, the last thing that she would have wanted was to say, hey, go see this guy who just told me every bad thing I've ever done. Like, go see him. It's really great. Like, she would be like, don't go see him. I mean, that's what I would do. I, I, I don't know. But in this passage, it tells us that, that he didn't really say everything she did, just all the bad things that she did. Like, he's just like, yeah, you did this, and you did this, you did this, five failed marriages, you've lived in boyfriend, you're a liar, you're codependent, you, you're socially awkward, no one wants to be around you. And she goes from that conversation to running in and telling everybody about how amazing Jesus is. Like, really? Like, that's the situation? That's her reaction to that type of rebuke? I mean, he just, like, aired all of her dirty laundry. I would be trying to cover things up that would put politicians to shame. I, I would be, like, going 100% trying to hide this person's excuses flying all over the place. Um, and you know, it's interesting because we just assume in reading the book of John that like, yeah, her life was changed, but how, how does this happen? Because she's given a word of knowledge and, and it's all this bad stuff that's gone on in her, in her life. And somehow after all of that happens, after she meets Jesus, her life is changed in a way where she's going and proclaiming this man to the world. How does that happen? What happens when you meet God? What happens when you come face to face with Jesus? How, 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 because if I was to go and tell somebody, yeah, you're, you're sleeping with a man that's not your husband, and, and you've had five marriages that have failed, they would like slap me, or, or they would never come back to church. I mean, that's just what it seems like would happen. That's the, what seems like would be the natural progression, but how does this happen? different how is this different how is god's effect on people different how did this happen well to look and see how this happens we have to go back to john 1 14 this is what it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the glory of the only begotten of the father full of two things grace and truth a little bit, one verse later, it says, and of his fullness, that word fullness is his essence, who he is, the person of Jesus. And of his fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace. In the original translation, the idea of that is grace for grace for grace for grace for grace for grace. I mean, it just, it continues forever, this grace of Jesus towards you and me. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice the language there? Because a lot of times we just skip over that. What it says is the law was given. What this is telling us is that Moses was a dispenser of the law. But when it comes to grace and truth, it says that it came. It wasn't given, it came. In other words, Jesus came down in the fullness of who he is, came with him. And what that is, is grace in truth. How is it that Jesus meets a woman at the well? He's able to tell her everything in truth. I'm just going to keep it real. I'm just going to tell you what you need to hear I mean, Jesus, he keeps it awkwardly real, right? I mean, this is not a comfortable situation. How does he speak so much truth and the woman goes proclaiming the name of him who called her out? And she's full of hope. She's full of joy. She's full of amazement. It's because this woman didn't just encounter truth. She encountered the fullness of God which means that she encountered grace and truth. And we have to understand something when it comes to this, these ideas of grace and truth. Yes, they are distinct from one another, but they are inseparable in the person of Jesus. They, whenever you have grace, there is truth. And whenever you have truth, there is grace. For what is grace without truth? Grace cannot be given without establishing truth because that would be irresponsible and unloving. The, the truth of the, re- the reality is that truth, truth um, without grace, or without truth, grace becomes grease. It becomes something that it doesn't really fit. Because what happens when you have grace and you don't have truth, it becomes this, oh, well, you know what, it's all good. Like, we'll just, God doesn't see that. Like, he doesn't care what you're doing. Don't worry about it. You could just do whatever you want, whenever you want, because, you know, you got grace and that's all that matters. And, and so it becomes irresponsible. It becomes something that, that really isn't Jesus. Don't worry about it. What, what are you talking about? Because God knows exactly what you've done. He knows exactly where you are, and grace can only be grace when there is an establishment of truth that comes first. But what is the ultimate truth? It's the transcendent gift of God through His Son, known as grace. So grace cannot be grace without truth, but truth cannot be its truest without grace. So what happens when God shows up? When God shows up, you encounter Full grace in perfect balance with full truth. Because they are both found in the person of Jesus. Why is this woman giving the truest truth about herself and she goes running full of pure joy, hope, and excitement? It's because she has realized and encountered full grace and full truth. And we have to understand something. In this story, this is awesome that this woman encounters the person in Jesus in physical form. But when it comes to you and I reading this story, we will not meet Jesus physically, tangibly, and visibly at our well. Like that's just not going to happen. He doesn't come in, in flesh and bone anymore. Um, you, you're not going to be able to do that. I won't be able to do that. But what Jesus says 
is that his spirit will come, and his spirit is even better. It says that his spirit will come, and what the Bible says is that it will lead you into all truth. And what we know from um, the study of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit always glorifies Jesus, and Jesus always glorifies the Father, and the Father always glorifies Jesus. It's like this cycle of, you're awesome, no, you're awesome, no, look at you, no, look at you. I mean, that's what it is, over and over again. And John says that it will teach us full truth, that the Holy Spirit will teach us full truth, who Jesus says is now coming and is now with us. And we must understand that when we learn about grace... And we learn about truth. They are one with the other at all times when we learn about the person of Jesus Christ, which is shown to us through the Holy Spirit. Why do you and I need the Holy Spirit? Because it leads us into the full truth of who Jesus is. So you might not see Jesus at your well, but the Spirit will come meet you wherever you are. He'll come to your couch. He'll come to your car. He'll come to the locker room. He'll come to your bed. It doesn't matter. Jesus will come in his spirit to you and meet you right where you are. So what happens when you meet God, when you meet Jesus? In John 8, another story, another encounter that Jesus has with a woman with uh, another issue that is quite similar to the one that we see in the first story. Uh, Jesus meets this woman. Well, doesn't meet her. She's thrown in front of him. Um, She's caught in adultery. Uh, The religious leaders have caught her in the very act, which is weird in itself. It's like, what? She was, why would you tell us she was caught in the act? Anyways, um, but they they ask Jesus and they're trying to catch him. What should you, or what are you going to do? Is it truth? Are you going to give her truth? Are you going to follow the law? Because she should be killed and you should throw the first stone, rabbi. Is that what you're going to do? And so Jesus, he looks at this woman, and what he's doing here is he's, he is revealing himself to us. This isn't just a book or a story. This is the actual person of Jesus Christ revealing himself, his power, his glory, and his essence. And what Jesus says to those people who are trying to bring out straight truth without grace, Jesus says, if you have not sinned, you, you can stone her. You can cast that stone. And it says that from the oldest to the youngest, the people dropped their rocks and walked away. By the way, that's the same thing that happens with your sins when it comes to grace. From the oldest to the newest sins in your life, they are all covered by Jesus. And there will not be a single rock, even if the enemy tries to tell you that you deserve to be stoned. Because of the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ, those stones will not be thrown at you. So Jesus, he turns to his disciples after this. He looks at the woman first and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's truth. There's grace and there's truth right there. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you see how I work? Do you see my light? Do you see how my light works? That my light is always grace and it is always truth in perfect balance with each other. And Jesus will never abuse either grace or truth. He will never abuse the light of who he is to his people. Like for me, uh, when I was um, uh, a youth pastor, like five, six, seven years ago, uh, mostly when I was in Colorado Springs, uh, we would go to camp with the kids, and I would have a a bunk full of, or a cabin full of 
of high school, junior high kids, and they would all be finally sleeping. And the counselors, we'd all get together with mag lights in the middle of the night. We'd just go up and like shine the lights super bright right in their faces in dead sleep because we thought that was funny. And that's what youth pastors do. And I did it again when I was in college and we would like shine lights on people's faces because we thought that was funny. But when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't abuse you. He doesn't do those type of things. He doesn't use light in a way that it shouldn't be used, but he always works in grace and truth. You know, there's so many people who will abuse truth for the sake of truth. They'll say, I just have to tell you how it is. You just need to listen to what's going on and what I have to say for you. And you aren't doing things right and you aren't good enough and you're messing up all the time. And so you better suck it up and you better be more spiritual or else you're going to get it from God. Listen, that will never ever bring spiritual progress in anyone's life. That's not what Jesus would ever do. And we're looking at stories that aren't just concepts and ideas. They're a person. Because truth apart from grace, grace apart from truth, they both cause separation. And they both, both cause us to have an inaccurate portrait of Jesus. You have to have both in perfect harmony. It goes on in John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus is now talking to his disciples after this whole situation with the woman who's been thrown in front of him. Then Jesus said to those um, Jews who believed... Um, uh, this, this is uh, going out to those who believe, um, and I really believe that it also goes out to us who believe. So this scripture is for you and it's for me. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believe, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, that word abide, what it means is to stay in the story. To stay in the story, not your story. We have to understand that the earth And the fullness of time is not the story of you or me. It's the story of God. And so what this is saying is stay in the story of God. Don't make this a story about you. Don't make this a story about somebody else. Embrace the story of God and know that the greatest thing that you could ever do is to just know and experience who God is. Not how good you are, not how many times you've gone to church, not how many times you pray or read the Bible and listen. All those things are great things, but they are meaningless if you don't meet him. So if you stay in my story, Jesus says, you are mine. And then it says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know, a lot of people will use that verse and say, yeah, truth will, set you, will make you free. So you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth because that truth's going to set you free. And if you know it and you embrace it and you just do everything that you're supposed to do, if you get rid of that attitude problem or you get rid of that thing, then you're going to be free. But the problem is what we don't understand is people use this word know and they think it says if you know the truth, then knowing the truth will set you free. That's not what it says. It says if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The person of Jesus will set you free. The fullness of truth, which is not just truth, but grace as well, that is what will set you free. You knowing something isn't going to get you anywhere in life. You have to know Jesus, experience Jesus. And it's so amazing because this word know, it doesn't mean head knowledge. It's the word gnosko, and it actually means to experience. 
It doesn't mean to like know something from a book or, or to have an idea of who Jesus is. It's an appointment. It's an experience. It's an encounter. Finding a connection, that connection with Jesus is what will set you free, not knowing about Jesus. See, the progression of a Christian should always be grace to grace, strength to strength, free to freer. Because when you know Jesus, his spirit is now inside of you. And that is the spirit of grace and is the spirit of truth. And that keeps you grounded in his story, not your own story. Not a story that's just truth and law and what you should be doing, but it's grace and truth. You are now in his story. And that grace and that truth combined perfectly together is what will make you more free. Not doing it on your own. Not being good enough. Just like we see with this woman at the well. It wasn't about what she did that was setting her free and giving her joy and, and excitement and hope for the future. It was the fullness of grace and truth that had invaded her life. I want to end at uh, John 16. We're going to end here. Uh, remember, Jesus is not going to physically, tangibly um, be here in Glendale or Phoenix or Peoria or Tempe or wherever you might live. He's not going to be here. Um, Keep that in mind. John 16, 7 and 8 says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart and send him to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What happens when you meet Jesus? You receive the helper. You receive the Holy Spirit. And he does three things. He convicts us. And, it, and I want to look at these three things. One, sin. It doesn't say sins. It's singular. And of righteousness. And of judgment. In verse 9 it says, Of sin because they do not believe in me. It says they. It's talking about the world. The Holy Spirit's primary sin that it convicts the world of is the sin of unbelief. What does Jesus say? Whosoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 16.10 Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You see where the change is? It goes from they when it comes to sin, to you when it comes to righteousness. It just changed audiences. The conviction of sin is for them, but the conviction of righteousness is for us. And it says in verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. What happens when you meet Jesus face to face? The Spirit of God is upon you. He is roaming the earth with a job, and that job is to convict the world of unbelief and to convict you and me of righteousness. And as a believer, the Holy Spirit, listen, he doesn't convict you of unbelief because you have already believed. We think the Holy Spirit's convicting us of sin, of unbelief. No, that doesn't happen. You've already believed. You're already covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
You've already believed. Your, your judgment and your punishment, they've been absolved by the body and the brokenness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We have two things here. We have became and we have become. We traded places. Jesus became so that we could become. Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So I am righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. So we know that the Spirit does not convict you of the sin of unbelief because Jesus has already forgiven you. He doesn't convict you of judgment because judgment has been exhausted by the victory Jesus had over sin and death. Listen, this is how we meet Jesus and Jesus comes into your neighborhood. Grace and truth will invade your life wherever you're at. And what that grace and what that truth says is that's not who you are. It's not who you are. And you're struggling with your sin and you're trying to make it right and you're trying to do it on your own because you want to be better for Jesus. You need to just listen to the Holy Spirit that convicts you of righteousness, not of sin, and says that is not who you are. And you're driving home and you're stuck in traffic and you're frustrated at the decisions that you keep failing in. And you're thinking, I've just got to do better and be better and make it right. And the Holy Spirit meets you and becomes your co-pilot. And all of a sudden he's speaking and ministering to you and saying, that's not who you are. That's truth, but it's also grace because you remember that God has a plan for your life so that you, you know that he hasn't forgotten you. That's the grace. That's not who you are. That's also truth because he's speaking truth that that's not what you're supposed to be doing, but that's not who you are as a person. I've made you to be something better. I've made you to do more things than that. And he shows up. Sometimes when we least expect it, And he brings you back to the dreams and the optimism of who you really are, of who God has called you to be. And and when that happens, and he speaks truth and grace in perfect harmony with one another, you won't feel shame, you won't feel guilt, you won't feel hopelessness, because you're overwhelmed by his grace. You've been given truth, but you've also been given the grace of Jesus Christ, and you start to really believe, yeah, you're right, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. I know that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You see, what sin does, what the enemy does, it tries to tell you that who you are is what you do. And that's condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look at this lady. She's been giving point after point after point of you've done this wrong and you have failed. And there's a ton of truth there. But she has hope because it's balanced in perfect grace. And it's the same for you. It's the same for me. That sin will try and condemn you and tell you what you do is who you are. But grace, which shows us perfect truth, tells you that who Jesus died for is you and why he died is to set you free so that you can now be 
what God has called you to become. He became so that you can become. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. That's who I am. And that's the message of the gospel. That's what we should be crying and screaming from the rooftops. Not you're bad and you're a sinner and you're an outcast. But you are loved by God. And when you come into relationship with Him, that's when you become the fullness of who God's called you to be. And there won't be hurt. There won't be animosity. There will just be hope. For future there will be a light at the end of the tunnel because that's who Jesus is and that's what happens when you meet Jesus would you stand and pray with me